You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Are you a diehard comic book collector? Or maybe a lapsed fan? Maybe even someone who has never picked up a comic book in their life. Hi, I'm Remso Martinez. And I'm Mark Clare. Every single Wednesday at the Second Print Comics Podcast, Remzo and I take a deep dive into the storylines, character arcs, moments, and events that made us the fans we are today. Tune in every Wednesday for new episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else podcasts are available. Check out more from the Second Print Comics Podcast at secondprintcomics.com. yourself you're on the run with remzo w martinez hello friends on today's show we have journalist holly mckay from australia author of the recent book only cry for the living memos from inside the isis battlefield we had a great conversation but just want to let you know there were a few audio issues on my end uh you might hear a little bit of it at the beginning but everything else works fine throughout it holly was a great guest uh i got to pick her brain on a whole ton of topics ranging from understanding the mindset foreign policy towards um you know the middle east and also just a, a million questions about journalism and reporting it was like listening to a master class so please sit back relax and check out her book i will go ahead and leave a link in the show notes today other than that away we go Holly, um, I mean, really, thank you, t- thank you for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. So I, I feel like I'm a little bit late to the party. I went ahead and just discovered your work about a week ago over on Instagram, and I went ahead and just ordered my copy through Amazon of your recent book, Only Cry for the Living, Memos from Inside the ISIS Battlefield. And I mean, I, I say this with with all respect. I mean, I mean, from the bottom of my heart, you are an absolute badass. The things that you have seen, the stories that you have been able to tell from those who probably would have never had a platform ever before. When when I was a young and aspiring journalist, you were the type of person that I wanted to become. So really, um, th- thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you. You know, I um. I really wanted to to be able to write something, you know, and be and be a vessel vessel for the people over there because to me they're the real badasses in all of this. I have the privilege of being able to go in and then leave when I don't when I don't want to be there anymore or I have to to get out. Whereas the people there, the that's the reality. That's their life day in and day out, and they get through it. And to me, that is is what I wanted to really bring back to an audience here. Absolutely. So for folks that are, are just learning about you, you're a foreign policy expert and war crimes investigator. Um, you've investigated um, international affairs as a war journalist for Fox News Digital. You did that for over 14 years where you focused on warfare, terrorism and crimes against humanity. I mean, your, your coverage has spanned the globe. Um, let's kind of just start at the beginning. What what makes a person want to get into this field? And when was that moment in your life where you were like, you know, what? I think I've I think I found my calling for the most part. Right. So, yeah, I obviously had a very different upbringing. I grew up in Australia, which is where my family all still is, and uh, went to, to away to a boarding school very young as, and was training as a ballerina. 
And that really, you know, it sounds at odds to people, but that sort of very early career really taught me so much about the world in that we had to study so many different uh, cultures and so many different sort of music origins. And I, I learned so much about the world, honestly, through that career. And then as I got a little bit older and I had to sort of start making decisions about what path I wanted to take and, and got injured, I always loved to write. So I went back down that route. Uh, I always loved to create. I thought I would sort of go into something creative. And then an opportunity presented itself in New York uh, to be an intern with Fox, who then wanted to sponsor me. And I was only 20 at the time. And I thought, oh, this was such a great opportunity. I didn't want to waste so I ended up going to Los Angeles and, and spent a lot of time doing more general assignments. So sort of court reporting, entertainment reporting, some investigative reporting, and I was sort of all over the map. And then as I got into my mid-20s and there were wars happening in Iraq and Afghanistan and all sorts of crazy things that I was learning and reading about through friends, and I just had this innate curiosity, I think, and I really wanted to understand it, and I wasn't convinced that we were always getting a full picture. And so I kind of just went headfirst into it. There was really no other way uh, to do it than just to do it, basically. And I had a great mentor at the time, uh, Dominique, his name was, unfortunately, he's not with us anymore. But uh, at the time, he had spent a lot of time living in Pakistan and just come back. And he just really said to me, you know, if this is what you want to do, you just have to do it. There's no sort of planning or ums and ahs and just you have to really want it and you have to find a way and I did and so my first couple of forays into it I just I was my mind was really blown about sort of the culture and the people and the things that we weren't hearing in the news and I was always very driven to be able to I guess shine a light in some of those darker corners of the world because I really think we tend to look at things in a very macro sense in this really big picture with statistics. And, and to me, I think we can understand some of these situations and conflicts in a much more micro sense, which is taking those individual stories to be able to explain the much bigger picture. And so that's always been something I've tried to do. Yeah. So for me, so my role models, especially in terms of wartime reporting, have been uh, Seymour Hirsch, um, mm. who covered the Vietnam War, uh, Charlie LaDuff, who was at Fox News prior to that, uh, covered the war in Iraq for the New York Times. Um, it, it's always that era that I remember growing up seeing the wartime reporters. That was almost the best combination between getting to be almost kind of like a an information-oriented celebrity and also an action hero at the same time. And it almost seems that, you know, for, for many of the young reporters that I met uh, in and around D.C., I was at the Washington Times for a while. I was the D.C. correspondent for a few California-based websites uh, prior to that. It, it seems like in, in terms of where, where young reporters see themselves, at least here in the United States, what they want to do is they want to try and start doing local coverage. And then the big goal is to ultimately, you know, either come to DC and be a DC correspondent or go to New York and work for one of the major publications or networks. It, mm. it seems like instead of actually going and finding stories for, for a lot of people, at least, you know, 
from from my time in the Beltway, they they almost want to skip as much of the actual reporting side of it, and then they almost just want to go straight into commentary work because yeah, it's, it seems yeah. like with investigative reporters and with reporters who are actually having to go out, especially these dangerous areas, they're they're becoming fewer and fewer almost, at least from my perspective. Right, and I also think you know maybe it's the proliferation of social media, but there's this sort of cult of personality that seems to be happening now where journalists or aspiring journalists are sort of, you know, quote unquote, building a brand and, and just kind of wanting to be the, the pundit on Twitter. Um, and to me, it's a real kiss of death for journalism because the story isn't about you. The idea of being a journalist is that the story is about the people whose stories you're telling. And, you know, I hope to bring a little bit of that old school journalism back you know, with my work and, you know, with the book where, you know, I'm telling a little bit about myself and my thoughts on things, but the story isn't about me. It's, it's, it's about these people because that is my job is to tell their stories. And yeah, I think it's a bit of a shame for sort of that investigative or war realm, um, you know, and even in DC, so much of it has become about about the writer or the the commentator themselves, and not actually about the substance of what we're trying to put out into the world. So, I hope that 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 sort of trend reverses at some point. Absolutely. Now, now focusing more in on your book, Only Cry for the Living, and folks, I'm going to go ahead and include a link so that way you could pick up a copy in the show notes after you listen to the episode. Um, what what this basically covers is you chron- chronicling the rise of ISIS in Iraq and really showing the devastation that, I mean, for, for the Western world, we only had an inch of about in terms of what's actually going on on the ground. Um, you know, I think the timing is also important, too, because of the presidential election and everything else. It almost seems like, at least here in the United States, nobody talks about ISIS anymore. No one talks mm. about what's going on in Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria unless we're dropping a bomb. And, you know, if you didn't vote for this guy, you don't like it when he does that type of stuff. But if you vote for this guy, then everything he's going and doing over there is perfectly fine. We just have to ignore it. So it seems like in terms of, you know, American involvement in the Middle East in terms of how we actually plan on helping the people who have been displaced by war. It it seemed like for a while that was something that we were talking about and seeing about on the news every day. But now it's something that has basically gone wayside. Um, You know, what really prompted you to want to work on the book specifically? And what are some of the things that you've been hearing from people who, you know, for the most part, this might be the first time they've ever heard of some of the atrocities committed by ISIS? Right. So I just, as I I sort of started covering that particular conflict back in the very early days in, in 2014, and I just compiled so many notebooks. So I sort of go and in and out constantly over the years and talk to as many people as I could and kind of really try to get as many different perspectives. And I had so many notebooks piled up and I thought so much of that didn't never made, you know, the articles that I was writing because they had to be a lot more sanitized for the news audience. And I really wanted to, to not let those go to waste. And I just thought these stories are far too valuable and there are lessons in there for all of us to learn when it comes to these wars and the, the real nuances and intricacies that I think um, tend to get overlooked in the basic news cycle that I really wanted to shed some light on. So I started to kind of put those together as best I could in a fairly raw sense. And, you know, as much as this is focused just on ISIS, it also 
it sort of paints a bigger template, I think, for the situation there and what terrorism groups do, what civil wars do that then spawns terrorism. And it's sort of the same story in so many parts of the world, obviously with differences in different players, but it's those same stories of human suffering that can go over and over again. And what I found to be just the most agonising I think part of all this was was knowing what the atrocities were as they were happening and there was this sense well we couldn't do anything about it knowing that the Yazidi girls and there were just thousands of them that had been taken as sex slaves that were 20 miles down the road from where I was and there was nothing I could do about it and there was nothing the United States or any of these humanitarian groups could do about it and that was so frustrating to me. Um, and, you know, and something I hope that we can start to consider a little bit more in terms of prevention before these things happen. And, yeah, I wanted to, to sort of make those historical documents. And, and also I think now that ISIS is no longer in the headlines where they aren't generating the attention, which means that there are other, other the resources are going to other places now. And it's actually a worse situation for a lot of the people that have been displaced whether it's the women or the children, they're they're living in, if it was squalor before, I don't even know what to call it now because the, the aid groups have either left or they're just not getting any funding. They're not getting psychological help. You know, people's attention spans are very small and so things go elsewhere and there are so many terrible things happening in the world, especially with the pandemic. But I think it's also important to remember just everything that they've been through and endured and then to sort of still be dealing with ramifications right now of just feeling forgotten, I think that is is something that's incredibly hard to stomach. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I consider myself, you know, politically right of center and, and to much chagrin of my more conservative friends, I tell them that one of my favorite actors is Sean Penn. Mm. And, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, liberal international activism, I actually really do admire him because he's one of the few people that was going around raising money for the for Haiti after the earthquakes, um, you know, some time ago, who still routinely goes back. So in terms Absolutely. of Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm totally with you there. Yeah, I mean, in terms of people that actually like practice what they preach, I will never say anything about Sean Penn because Haiti, no one has really cared about Haiti for probably five, six years now. And I can only think of all the other natural disasters and events over the past decade alone that, you know, it's like, oh, this is, this is where we're going to end this. This is where the whole world is going to come together and we're going to fix this. And I mean, it's, it's truly, it's truly devastating because, you know, very much early on, um, I, I was, I was in the military for a little bit, you know, I, I joined, I remember thinking, yeah, you know, we're, we're spreading, you know, peace and democracy and everything, and we're going to fix all sectarian violence in the Middle East. And then, you know, I start to see soldiers coming back and coming back. And I'm like, so what was it like? What did you see? And they're like, man, we have no clue what's going on. Mm. And it's one of those situations where, you know, I, I know people uh, in D.C. who are part of NGOs that tried to combat human trafficking and, you know, tried to bring, you know, medical devices and doctors over to to Iraq and Afghanistan. And they look around and I mean, they what, what, what breaks my heart is when they tell me it's like, dude, we want to do in a year what 
most people don't realize is like a hundred year problem. This yeah. isn't just coming here and doing, you know, like a live aid event to fight AIDS or something like that. Like if we're going to be here, like we're going to have to be here for a long time. And it, it, it takes us to the point where it's like, you have to understand like what applies to like the rest of the world, Europe, the United States does not apply here. So if you're not willing to adapt to that, um, you know, no, no progress will be made. And that's, that's the problem that, I mean, I think for a lot of people, they, they encounter that and then they just get demoralized. It's like, well, there's nothing I can do and I can't get enough people to care about this. So why even talk about it? Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, we have to define what progress is. Is it our vision of progress? Is it their vision of progress? What is progress? Um, and again, I think, you know, for me, the, the biggest way to wrap my head around all of that is taking things back to a micro level instead of these sort of sweeping macro level sort of changes. What what can we do as individuals as you know, piece by piece to try to improve the lives of individuals as opposed to looking at a whole bunch of statistics and just feeling completely overwhelmed and throwing up our hands and walking away from it. Um, and that's where I found that. I think when we try to sort of take smaller steps and 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 go one by one, we're probably going to have a lot more success in that sense. Um, and that doesn't always have to be boots on the ground, doesn't have to be military interventions, but it's sort of looking at how we can uh, support humanitarian efforts or support individuals that need help or just to support the you know, existing uh, political structures that are in place. And at the end of the day, it has to be the Iraqis, it has to be the Syrians, it has to be the people uh, who belong to that country that are really the only ones that can can make those sweeping changes. And yeah, I, I'm a big supporter of, of sort of peeling it back and taking it in, in small steps at a time. Yeah, the, the one thing I remember from from a really good friend of mine who was a he he was an, he was an artillery officer in the army. Um, his first deployment was to Baghdad. I think it was around 2016, 2017. So around this point, you know, we're, we're still talking about ISIS, but it's beginning to dwindle down mm. a little bit because we're so focused on a presidential election. So he comes back about a year later and I ask him, you know, like, what did you do? And for him, it was primarily, you know, uh, building relationships as a field artillery officer. He found himself not blowing things up as often as he thought he was going to. It was going to different villages and trying to develop relationships with local tribe leaders and, you know, trying to help build a school or something in order to instill goodwill. And, um, you know, he, he came back, uh, a different person. I'm not going to say he was adversely changed, but mm. he, he was a bit more melancholy about his experience because here I am hearing about all the amazing things he's doing and he's acting more like a diplomat instead of a soldier. And when I asked him, so it's like, you know, what, what, what do you think is going to stick around after you leave? And he's like, dude, as soon as I left, they blew up the school and they killed yeah. like seven people. And he's like, the only way that anything is ever going to, you know, change permanently is if the people there take charge because we don't want to be there forever and they don't want us there forever. But we want us, we want to be able to leave and say that we left, we left the situation better than we came in and saw it. And that's just one of those things where it's like that, you know, the, the definition of winning was never necessarily defined and now it just doesn't seem that attainable yeah absolutely and it is difficult and i think with the isis conflict specifically 
that was viewed or justified from the U.S. lens as being a national security threat to the United States, which those sort of international terrorist groups definitely are. And I think, you know, it's it's also this sort of idea where people look at it and go, well, the U.S. only wants to intervene in a certain place where it has its own interests. And to a degree, I can really sort of sympathize with that because the U.S. can't be everywhere. And I and we do need to put our priorities um, in order to know, you know, what's going to affect the American people the most and what is going to have an impact uh, on the homeland. So, you know, I, I am very sympathetic to that argument. I think there's a lot that can also be done in a non-military sense uh, in terms of just kind of supporting the people who really have no means of support or have no other avenue uh, and they're not receiving the help that they should be getting from their own governments. So I think there's there can be a better balance struck in terms of, of how we approach the foreign world. Definitely. Um, kind of transitioning a little bit. I, I am curious from from you personally, and I'm looking at the list of places that you've covered. Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria. I need to take a breath. Iran, Turkey, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Burma, Russia, Africa, Latin America. I mean, your your passport must look amazing. Uh, I'm I'm curious, when you first went to the Middle East specifically to start covering it, amidst the wars and everything, you know, what, what were some of your initial presuppositions, your biases, what were the things that you went there with and what ended up changing the longer you stayed and the more you traveled? So I always thought it was, um, I guess, fairly interesting how easily I felt very accepted everywhere I went, um, whether that was sort of Saudi Arabia or whether that was Afghanistan or wherever I always, there, there is this really sort of strong sense of hospitality uh, that comes in with a lot of these communities and how grateful they are to have somebody that chooses that makes that decision to come into their sort of hellfire that everyone else is trying to flee from. Um, and so I always, I always felt extremely welcome and never, you know, felt that sort of sense of hostility that I think a lot of people think if a Western is coming in. Um, you know, and as a woman too, I also really believe it's always been a great advantage to me uh, to really access 100% of the population that a lot of my male colleagues can't because they can't go and sit with the women privately and have those conversations. Whereas for me, I can do that, but I'm, I guess, considered what we call the third gender, where I'm not really having to also be um, as conservative as, as, as the local women are. So I can also go into the uh, cigar room with the men so I can hear their stories too. So it's been able to sort of give me this very comprehensive viewpoint of what's happening. And I think a lot of people think women, you know, can't work, Western women especially, can't work in these places. And I don't think that's true. Having said that, there are definitely certain protocols that you follow in certain parts of, say, a country like Iraq. Um, you know, if I'm in the north in, in Kurdistan, it's very normal. I don't cover. I'm wearing the same clothes, jeans and T-shirt that I'd be wearing in the United States. Um, but then, you know, you go further south, uh, especially below Baghdad, when you're into the more religious Shia communities, Najaf, et cetera, and then I'm in a fuller buyer. So it's really region by region um, and really having kind of a good understanding of, of what the best approach in where you're going um, and, and following that and sort of following the protocol. 
So I think, yeah, for me, the sort of the biggest uh, misconceptions is that we can we want to paint it all with with one broad picture of of extreme uh, conservatism or having to sort of follow a playbook. And for me, it's it's never been like that. It's very it's not even country by country. It's literally could be village by village. So you have to just accept it's a real mosaic of of different uh, different viewpoints and, and different environments. And that has been a really fascinating learning curve. So I listened um, to your appearance on the Jocko podcast the other day. I'm, I'm about halfway through. It's a three-hour-long episode. Oh, uh, wait, okay. talk for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I will go ahead and include uh, the link to that episode so people can go ahead and check it out. But, I mean, some of the stories, and especially as uh, Jocko, who, who helped publish your book, is introducing the episode in terms of just some of the women who were sold into sex slavery. I mean – we know that stuff exists and we know that stuff is around the world. And it's almost like we just imagine these faceless women or these mm. faceless people. It's just this horde of people who are just v- victims. And then when you actually go ahead and tell the story as you do in your book about just the individuals, it, it hit me differently because, you know, I can just think of, Oh, there are many victims out there. But when you begin to just hear the story of one and then you begin to understand this is just one situation. There are many others out there. It, it takes you in a way that, you know, narrative storytelling has that power to do. Um, you know, just in terms of the stuff that you saw and, and the stories and the places that you've been, especially as you were getting closer and closer to the front lines, um, were you ever scared? I think there are certain situations where you, no, I'm, I don't know if scared is the right word. I mean, there is definitely a sense of, of reality or a jolt of reality of fear. And I think you should have that. And if you don't have that, then then there's a problem and you really probably shouldn't be there. So I think fear is a, nat- a very natural uh, self-protective mechanism to a situation that you do feel extremely vulnerable. And But it's definitely obviously not good to panic. So there are the two balances between the two. But I, yeah, I've definitely had many situations um, where I've relied heavily on my instincts. And I think it sounds strange, but those instincts really save you. Uh, situations where people have said, get, you know, this car is going to uh, to Crete or wherever it may be, and you need to get in the car. And, and I've just had a feeling of I'm not getting in that car today. I'm not going there today, even though I want to go there and that car being ambushed. So I think for me, it's, it's a lot of sort of relief and really trying to tune in and listen to, to what I know. um, I guess my body is, is telling me, but in terms of fear, again, I always defer back to who am I to, how do I describe it? I mean, I guess I'm always just in awe of the people that live there and go through it day after day and their resilience and their survival instincts. And that has been such a huge game changer for me. And I thought if these people can survive these incredibly heinous situations and, and get through it every day, that's where I learn from them and, and kind of follow their lead in trying to remain as calm as I can in those situations and just listening to the people who know and, and, and following their advice and just remaining as, as calm as I can. But um, and it's, it's funny because it's often not the frontline situations that give me the most anxiety. It's usually 
um, sort of a sense of unknowing. I remember I was in Syria at one point and it was Trump had just, uh, it was that sort of, I think it was the second round of, of missile launches that he did there in early 20, must have been early 2018 after the chemical attacks. And, you know, I'd, I'd gone in illegally over the Euphrates from Iraq and kind of made my way up through and, you know, oh, suddenly I'm sorry started getting these. Like, I'm, I'm yeah. curious as to how, how, how does that happen? How do you, how do you cross borders <laughs> well, like that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you that's, can, that's, if you can. That's part of the crazy part. I mean, you have to, you have to plan logistics and things, but essentially with, with the coming in from that side, um, you're in a, you're in a boat crossing the Euphrates. So it was me in a boat in a backpack in my bloody armor and saying oh, goodbye on the Iraq side and <laughs> arrived in the Syria side. And the second, I remember the first time I went in, I arrived in the Syria side. And the first thing I see was just a pile of coffins. And I was like, oh gosh, what am I in for? And there was this huge difference even then between Iraq and Syria. It was like Iraq felt like a, a civilized place. It was built up. It had, you know, all these um, stores and people and gas stations and it, you know, it felt it felt like a, a real sort of city and then I got to Iraq, uh, to Syria and I just it was being in the wild west um, there was just there was nothing in sight uh, and I had a driver sort of drive 10 hours to pick me up and we drove another 10 hours once I'd, I'd gotten all my things so it does take a little logistical planning in that sense and you do have to to cross your eyes and tears and, and have people that can be there to meet you and rely on them. So I definitely put a lot into my logistics. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. So we, Oh no, I, I was captivated. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was funny. I, I can send you a picture of it. It's kind of a, yeah. And I mean, that's how a lot of workers have to do it every day. You know, they may be living in one country or have family in another and they have to, to, uh, to cross that river every day. There's really not too many other solutions when you're coming in from that side. So, um, and it's a very short little boat ride. I mean, it's literally, you can see from one one side to the other and you just have to, to cross that river. Um, but yeah, so I was in there when Trump started bombing it and and so there was all this chaos happening and, um, and then I start getting all these uh, mysterious phone calls and so the first thing you go to is, oh, my goodness, is this the Macabarat? Is this the Syrian intelligence? Because they really have uh, an extremely equipped system. And are they, you know, are they tracking me? Who's coming for me? So it's a sort of sense of the unknown. And that tends to have always given me a lot more anxiety than any terrorist group is, is sort of sense of who's following you, who's coming after you, who knows what, and not quite knowing who to trust in certain situations. And that's always given, yeah, that's always jolted my nerves a lot more than um, that it has been just kind of covering a front line. Yeah. I mean, this is just one of those things that it, it, it shocks me here because I I've been out of, I've been out of the media space for about a year now. And I think my, my, my criticisms of, of most reporters and journalists now have, have, have pretty much been the same. But I remember like, you know, uh, three, four years ago during really the, well, before 2020. So the initial height of the Black Lives Matter movement, I knew mm. a lot of, you know, right of center conservative reporters who said, yeah, you know, it would be really cool to go cover it and to go embed yourself and stuff. But, you know, I'm, I'm afraid they'll find me and I'm afraid they'll do something to me. And I'm like, dude, 
like one, that's probably not going to happen. Secondly, like it's, it's your job to report. So if you know there's a story there and you can get your editor to back you up, go and report the story. And right. I mean, I, I even have some, some folks I knew who were at ABC, the New York Times. They were like, well, you know, I'm afraid to go to the Tea Party rallies because I see they have guns there. And I'm like, yeah, but if you can get a story out of it and if, if you can learn something out of it, it's not just your job. I, I feel like for, for the most part, and I – this is going to sound terrible. I feel like it takes sometimes a terrible event such as a war to kind of mm. wake us up to what we have to do, not just for ourselves, but for others. But it's that ability to say, I'm not just doing this just because this is my job, but because this is my calling, you know, I, I have to go forth and do it for, for many. And with the time we have left, I, I've just got this and another question, but you know, for, for many young reporters out there that look at, the things going on right now. And as we mentioned earlier with social media and everything else, it's harder to get coverage for a story you work really hard on, especially with the nature of clickbait headlines and things like that. Um, you know, what, what, what's your message to those, you know, young and aspiring reporters and journalists that actually want to go out and find the real stories? Yeah. I mean, you just have to do that. Just that you can't wait for uh, you can't wait for a publication or a, editor or someone to sort of give you the green light. If you have the story, you find the story, it's going to be on you to, to get out there and to find it and put it together and, and find a home for it if you're if you're not already working for an existing company. So, yeah, I mean, the, the onus is on you, is essentially, and no, and no one is going to give you a, uh, no one's going to hand you the a silver spoon with this is how you do it and, and here you go. It really you have to really want it. And if you want to be that kind of field reporter that's in the mix and there are so many incredible rewards with, with that, you've got to really want it. And if you don't really want it and there is something you think you might prefer to be doing in life, banking or whatever, go do banking. <laughs> if you want to do, you know, that kind of really detailed, and there's different types of journalism, but if you want to be that person that's sort of in the heart of a story and, and telling things, you just have to do it. And I granted, I say that war reporting comes with, um, you know, I wouldn't recommend someone just jump on a plane and go to so-and-so and so-and-so without experience. And even when I went and did that, even though I kind of jumped into that particular type of reporting, I'd already had many years of uh, of being a journalist and understanding how journalism worked and, and how to build a contact and how to build a story and those sort of early, in my early 20s, those years were so valuable to me when I eventually went into that war style reporting. So be, be, be careful if that's your goal. It's a great goal to have, but make sure that you understand how a newsroom works and understand how a story works. And you can't just sort of be going in and trusting anyone uh, in the region. So, and try to find a great mentor too. Find a mentor whose work you admire, who can sort of give you an ear or advice. I think that's also another thing uh, with journalism. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to find the, the people. And that was really difficult to me to find uh, sort of the right person to bounce ideas off. And, and when I had someone at, at Fox Dominique who was so supportive of that and, and gave me his feedback on that and sort of made a couple of ISIS trips himself, that was so reassuring. That confidence jolt that I needed to know that I could could do this and could do it correctly. So yeah, my advice would be, you have to really want it and go and do it. 
Well, you, you've definitely touched on it here, but this is why I usually ask uh, some of my guests. But if you could go back and meet your younger self at the start of your career, what, what are the some? What are some of the key lessons that you would want to tell yourself that you, that you didn't already go over? Um, I think if I had that time travel opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, I definitely not someone who would want to change anything. I think I've had a, a, a really interesting trajectory and in, in being able to meet and cover so many different facets of and subject matters in journalism. I think I would have probably just sort of said earlier to wait for permission last, push back a little bit more. I think sometimes we try to be very passive and, and we try to please what managers and bosses and, and people want, and that's all very great. But I think having those sort of, and diplomatically, but really push back in what you believe in and really fight for what you believe in. And that's sometimes hard to find your voice when you're, you're starting out and, and having the confidence to do that. But I think that's something that's really needed in journalism to get us away from the clickbait, to get us away from just the aggregated kind of style that a lot of um, news outlets are now sort of taking on. And you've got to really push back and just continue to fight and find things that align with your morals as well and not be afraid to do that. And early in your career, it's the perfect time to, to be able to kind of experiment and find your feet. So I definitely think, you know, stick to your laurels and, and, and push back. Well, folks, the book is Only Cry for the Living, Memos from Inside the ISIS Battlefield. Holly, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to call in today. I've learned a lot. I know my listeners have learned a lot. If they want to go ahead and connect with you on social media, uh, you know, keep up with all of your work, how, how can they do so? Please do. I, I try to respond to as many questions and messages as I can. It's uh, Holly, H-O-L-L-I-E-S for Sam. M-C-K-A-Y. And that's both my Twitter and my Instagram is usually the best way. Perfect. And folks, I'll make it super easy for you. I'll go ahead and include it in the show notes. Holly McKay, thank you so much for joining the program today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, folks, it costs you nothing, but it means everything to me. A five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts lets people know how you're benefiting from this, the awesome conversations we're having with fantastic guests like Holly and others, and it helps the show keep going. These are great conversations that we're having. Let's continue them together. Once again, thank you for listening to On the Run. I'm Remster W. Martinez. Take care, be safe, and I'll talk to you later. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Like the Chris Spangle Show, Liberty Explained, The Brian Nichols Show, The Boss Hog of Liberty, Freedom Strips with Keaton Tucker, On the Run with Rimzo Martinez, Gingerarchy with Trisha Stewart Mann, Upward Libertarian Activism, and now hear this. Tune in now and we're going to help you sound smarter when talking with your friends. 